Hello, my name is Khalil Ghanem, and I'm one of the associate editors at STI. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Stephen Barry from Johns Hopkins University to this podcast. Steve and I will be discussing a paper by Anne Birchall and colleagues published in this month's issue of STI. The title of the paper is Modest Rise in Chlamydia and Gonorrhea Testing Did Not Increase Case Detection in a Clinical HIV Cohort in Ontario, Canada. Steve has written an editorial commentary which accompanies this paper. Steve, welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to have a chance to discuss it with you. Great. So I'm going to start by asking you to please summarize the setting and findings of the virtual paper. Sure. Virtual and colleagues looked at gonorrhea and chlamydia testing rates uh, over time in a group of seven affiliated HIV clinics in Ontario, Canada. And they looked not only at uh, testing, meaning uh, how many people attending the clinic each year were tested, but they also looked at case detection, how many cases of gonorrhea or chlamydia among everyone attending the clinic uh, were detected each year by whatever testing was done. There are probably three uh, lines of motivation for the uh, exam for the observations they made. Uh, the first two are the theoretical underpinnings for why we do widespread screening in HIV clinics. The first is that prevalence studies for gonorrhea and chlamydia in HIV clinics have shown that uh, at any given time, about 10% of persons in the waiting room are positive for gonorrhea or chlamydia. Uh, and these are studies done taking consecutive patients one after the other and testing them at all uh, potentially affected body sites, oral, urogenital, and rectal. Uh, almost all of the cases are asymptomatic. The second theoretical underpinning is that there's potentially a lot of value to detecting gonorrhea and chlamydia among patients attending HIV clinics beyond the value uh, simply for uh, stopping the spread of gonorrhea and chlamydia and preventing gonorrhea and chlamydia outcomes. And that value is in potentially preventing HIV transmission both by uh, indicating opportunities for providers to counsel patients, obviously engaged in high-risk behaviors, and also uh, potentially by decreasing HIV virus concentrations in locally infected tissues and therefore potentially decreasing HIV infectivity to partners. So based on those two theoretical underpinnings, there are guidelines in many parts of the world uh, United States, Canada, many countries in Europe, Australia, which suggest that uh, or recommend that patients who attend HIV clinics should be screened uh, at least once a year uh, for gonorrhea and chlamydia, and that screening should happen at all relevant body sites. The third overall motivation for Birchell's study was that data have come in from other centers showing that uh, although these guidelines exist, they're not necessarily followed very well. And maybe only 20 or 30% of persons actively following up in HIV clinics are actually screened uh, on an annual basis. And that stands uh, in sharp contrast, for example, to syphilis screening. 
So we have similar guidelines to screen all sexually active persons engaged in HIV care for syphilis once a year, and about 65, maybe even 70, 75% of persons are actually screened for syphilis annually. So Birchall and colleagues set out to observe what was gonorrhea and chlamydia screening in clinical practice in Ontario over time, and they observed about 3,000 patients actively following up in clinic from 2008 through 2011. They observed that uh, testing increased. It went from 15% of people in care annually uh, in 2008 to 27% by 2011, so it almost doubled, but they confirmed the finding that overall it was quite low uh, adherence to the screening guidelines. And finally, they had one more uh, somewhat paradoxic finding. Despite all of the extra testing that was being done, case detection remained stable. So the additional people tested in later years were less likely to actually be positive for gonorrhea or chlamydia, and therefore the number of cases detected among all patients coming into clinic, whether they were tested or not, remained less than 2% uh, each year throughout the study. Wow. So did their findings surprise you? Is this unique, something unique in Ontario? Particularly that conundrum of no increase in case detection, despite increased testing, it intrigues me. Um, and I think it should intrigue public health authorities and STI and HIV researchers, but it didn't entirely surprise me. We saw a similar occurrence when we examined screening rates in a large HIV clinic in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, and between 99 and 2007, screening increased from 12% to 33%. But again, uh, case detection remained stable throughout that uh, period. I think that the key is that all the extra testing being done is not occurring in persons who are uh, likely to be positive or perhaps even more uh, uh, focused way to put it is is not occurring at body sites which are likely to be positive. So in Ontario, although 95% of positive cases were occurring in MSM and uh, men who have sex with men make up the large majority of patients engaged in care, less than 5% of tests were being performed at the rectal and oral sites. Uh, and that mirrors very much what we observed in Baltimore, where uh, less than 3% of tests were being done at rectal and oral sites, yet uh, almost all MSM uh, are engaged uh, in sexual intercourse uh, using those body sites. And we know from, from good work in other settings that when gonorrhea and chlamydia cases occur, the majority of the time they are likely to be rectal or oral, not urogenital, among MSM in HIV clinics and that concomitant infections are uh, rare, so that when a person has a rectal infection, uh, less than 10% of the time, that man will have a concurrent urogenital infection, so during doing a urine assay will fail to detect uh, the case overall. So do you think that we've not been successful at identifying more STIs in our HIV-infected patients because this is a problem with the clinicians? Because the guidelines are pretty clear about extragenital screening. So do you think it's a problem with the clinicians? Do you think it's a problem with the system? Uh, what's going on and what are the major barriers there? Right. Several questions and, and they're all great questions. Let me start with the first and I'll say that 
as to whether it's the clinicians or the guidelines and and policymakers, uh, I think it's both. Uh, and to to start with uh, clinicians, it's clear that some clinicians can do a lot better than others. So a nice study from Australia compared gonorrhea chlamydia screening rates among clinicians who are primarily trained as genital health experts versus providers who are primarily HIV experts. And among the general health experts, uh, over 40% of all uh, MSM in HIV care were screened every year at each site, urethral, rectal, and oral, uh, versus only 6% among those who were uh, primarily uh, HIV trained. So uh, being attuned to where gonorrhea and chlamydia uh, actually occur and being uh, facile uh, with the conversations and the performing the testing, uh, I think probably makes a big difference and, and clinicians uh, can be held accountable to, to be better at it. That being said, there are problems with the system uh, at uh, policy levels, at research levels, and uh, potentially at industry levels. Uh, and what I mean by that is that uh, there are barriers uh, to performing screening, especially screening of all body sites. Several research groups have set out to identify barriers and top among them, and I think reasonably so, is that doctors say it takes a lot of time. Uh, and it does take time in the clinic to screen extragenital sites. Uh, and visits are short uh, when it's a routine follow-up visit, but there are other things to deal with uh, in the day, uh, HIV medicines to change or, or new issues that come up. Uh, it gets hard to devote a lot of time to screening. And where there has been success in a number of clinics, the success has often uh, appeared when task shifting has been available. So when the doctors have stepped out of the role and had nurses identify potentially who needs to be screened and then lead the screening with those patients, or in some cases to have patients uh, self-collect specimens themselves and uh, provide those to the labs. And so through those means, we've seen clinics, individual clinics, usually under research purposes, be able to uh, increase their rates. But the central problem is where do, we, where do we organize our system so that that time can be made for screening to occur? Finally, um, along the lines of whether individual clinics can conveniently offer rectal and oral testing or not, is the availability of the very best tests. So the very best tests at rectal and oral sites are nucleic acid tests. And I say very best because their sensitivity is far higher than culture. Uh, and that's been well demonstrated. The trouble is that the uh, makers of nucleic acid tests uh, have not uh, obtained regulatory approval, either in the United States or in European countries, so that the standard uh, assays can be used at rectal and oral sites. This requires that individual laboratories uh, in hospitals or other commercial laboratories perform their own uh, validation tests for the nucleic acid assays to assure that their methods are valid. And that's a lot of extra uh, work uh, for laboratories to do. And so this was apparent in the Ontario study where nucleic acid testing uh, simply wasn't available uh, at many clinics. And that leaves the only available method culture 
and uh, culture is not only less uh, sensitive, but it's uh, becoming more rare. So performing gonorrhea in chlamydia cultures are uh, unusual types of cultures. They require microbiologic expertise, and fewer and fewer labs are performing them. Uh, so simply having the availability of, of good uh, assays that can be sent to the laboratory, even though they're off-the-shelf assays, being able to use those in a clinic can be a big barrier. So, Steve, in addition to task shifting, what are some other possible solutions uh, to this problem? Sure. Let me start with where I left off talking about the nucleic acid assays at rectal and oral sites. I think that it would be wonderful if there's a emphasis from policymakers, persons in governments, uh, as well as partnership with the companies that make uh, the nucleic acid tests to pursue regulatory approval for use at those sites and uh, that therefore these tests could become widely available. And I think that would remove uh, one barrier for a lot of clinics. Uh, and I think there is potentially uh, quite a lot of persons in care each year where the testing would be relevant. And I'm not the first person to, to make this call for regulatory approval uh, for these assays at rectal and oral sites. Secondly, the I think what can be done to facilitate screening from a policy level in part comes down to a case that we need more research. We need to be able to find out which persons in care are most likely to be positive and which persons it's really worth testing. And therefore, if time is limited, HIV clinicians can plan to focus their efforts just where they're most needed. So save time by not screening persons uh, where it's less relevant and uh, focus time on the persons where it is relevant. In other words, the guidelines which exist are, are pretty uniform in saying test everyone who's sexually active at least once a year, but that everyone who's sexually active means a big group of people. It's quite likely that uh, because gonorrhea and chlamydia in many populations are uh, infections which occur in relatively young people uh, and much less likely in, in older persons, that an age cutoff could be applied if we only had uh, the good epidemiologic data to suggest that age cutoff, uh, where it would be probably differently possibly for women, for men who have sex with men, and for uh, heterosexual men. Also, it's worth re-examining the value of screening in HIV-infected persons who have long-term stable control of their HIV. So uh, again, it was one of the theoretical underpinnings for doing screening that HIV transmission can potentially be decreased substantially. But we know that having suppressed HIV viral load decreases transmissibility by 95% or more, and it's worth re-examining in modeling studies and cost-effectiveness studies whether there should be the same recommendations for screening persons who are uh, have stable HIV viral control uh, because, frankly, they may be uh, have low likelihood to transmit uh, HIV in the first place and uh, therefore treating gonorrhea or chlamydia and even engaging them in discussions about safer sex may have less impact in terms of 
transmitting HIV and preventing HIV transmission than was originally conceived by persons who considered the current guidelines uh, in the early 2000s. And I think that there are HIV disease models and there are uh, certainly ample cohorts, uh, clinical cohorts in, in countries all around the world where these questions could be asked. So a lot to think about, Steve. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with us. For more information on this topic, be sure to read the paper by Anne Birchall and colleagues published in this month's issue of SDI and the editorial commentary by Steve Barry accompanying it. Thank you for joining us. 